The following is brought to you by TheKnowledge.com, Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Politics, 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 politics. Hello, friends. It's your old pal, Justin Robert Young, here for the Politics, Politics, Politics program. I, for a couple reasons, work-related and personal, am going to take this Friday off. But there is some news you might have heard. The infrastructure deal, the bipartisan infrastructure deal, is indeed a thing. So we've been following this one for, for weeks, it feels like. It is now moving along in the Senate. If you want a full breakdown of what happened, who voted for it, including a big surprise, and where I believe it's going, that is going to be in the PX3 Extra Late Edition that you can get by signing up at the $3 level at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. As for this episode, I wanted to play something that I think is exceptional. And as we uh, set ourselves up for our big political triad meetup in Nashville next week, August 5th at 5 p.m. Uh, at Scoreboard in the Grand Ole Opry district of, of uh, Music City, I wanted to play an episode that Andrew Heaton did for the political orphanage. What really toppled the Berlin wall? Now, before I, 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 I play it for you, I, I want to uh, just alert everybody. This is a little bit dated. It was made during Biden's inauguration, but, and I know this because I, I've, I, I had a lot of conversations with Heaton about this topic when he was in the research phase for it. It's evergreen. In fact, if there is a story that I think encapsulates not only Heaton's brand on the political orphanage, but, but also I think what binds him to uh, Jen Briney of Congressional Dish and myself, it, uh, it, it is the lessons learned uh, and explained so eloquently in this episode. So... Uh, without further ado, this is a special PX3 presentation of the political orphanage, What Really Toppled the Berlin Wall. The fall of the Berlin Wall is one of my favorite stories. If I were a camp counselor, this is the tale I would regale youngsters with around a campfire. Chances are you already know about the Berlin Wall, but kind of as an epilogue to the Soviet Union. You've seen footage of ecstatic Germans tearing a concrete eyesore to pieces, 
as if rendering asunder the bones of a dead Soviet monster. That's all true. But that's not the story. That's the conclusion. The story of the Berlin Wall is magnificent. It's filled with things I love. Spineless, incompetent bureaucrats getting bested by little old ladies, the folly of giant border walls, the stupidity of communism, the triumph of individuals, of folks, regular folks like you and me, over the dark specter of totalitarianism, which I am old enough to still detest and fear. Plus, copious amounts of beer, David Hasselhoff, and a lot of attractive blonde people with high, well-placed cheekbones. That's not even including the time we very nearly went to nuclear war over opera tickets. More on that momentarily. This is the story of the Berlin Wall and how the people of Germany knocked it down. It's ultimately not a story about barriers or economics or politics. It's a story about humanity. And one that I promise, I will, I will bring it to the inauguration. It's all going to make sense, trust me. In 1945, we defeat the Nazis. Well done, us. And, tip of the hat to the Soviet Union, who actually did most of the killing, we stay friends with our old commie allies for approximately six minutes before we kick off the Cold War. And Germany, specifically Berlin, is the fault line of that conflict. From 1945 on, Berlin is, for political purposes, an island. The entire city is inside of East Germany, which was under communist control, but half of the city itself was controlled by France, Britain, and America. So it's a kind of democratic capitalist holdout. The Soviets don't particularly like having a beacon of Western democracy and capitalist prosperity right in the middle of their crummy communist satellite state. Nikita Khrushchev said it stuck like a bone in the Soviet throat. And then more colorfully, he later described it as a testicle he could squeeze whenever he wanted to piss off the West. Outside of the Soviet blockade that Stalin had done early on, the borders between East and West Berlin had been porous, uncontrolled borders between the two Germanys. Sometimes you had to flash an ID to somebody to schlep across town, but you, you didn't even need a passport to go from East Berlin to West Berlin. East Germans and West Germans could go hang out in the other country's side of the city and then come back the same way that people in Kansas City can go back and forth between Kansas and Missouri and drive where they want. So West Berliners could head over to East Berlin for, I don't know, cheap gruel, vintage clothing, I guess, buy a crappy five-wheeled communist automobile. And East Berliners could come over to West Berlin for food and prosperity and freedom, many of whom never bothered to come back. In the first 10 years after Germany's division, three million East Germans strolled across the border, defected, and stuck around West Germany. In the month of June 1961, about 19,000 East Germans walked right into West Berlin and stayed. The following month, 30,000 East Germans decided that they'd just assume stick around the decadent West as opposed to go home. In a single day in August of that year, just one day, over 2,000 people defected from East Germany to West Germany. This is all bad news for East Germany's Communist Politburo. You can't very well bring about a glorious workers' paradise if all of the stupid workers keep fleeing your slave state regime for the decadent West. 
Also, a lot of these traitorous workers are, in fact, doctors, teachers, engineers, professionals. You don't want to hemorrhage if you can avoid it. West Germany and West Berlin are a brain drain on the socialist economy. At that time, East Germany's leader is Volker Ulbricht, which, incidentally, I apologize in advance if I butcher any German names today. I don't speak good German on account of we won the war, but I will do my best. When asked about East Germany's people-leaking problem, and if the government planned to erect a border or stop East Berliners from being able to commute into West Berlin, Ulbricht reassured everyone that East Germany had no intention of building a wall. And he was completely honest in that regard for just about a month and a half until he was actually able to obtain permission from the Kremlin to build one. On the evening of August 12, 1961, the East German regime quickly and without warning erected barbed wire borders around the entirety of West Berlin. People woke up. Remember, previously they'd been able to shuttle back and forth, even though they were citizens of, of dueling regimes. People woke up to find that their city had been divided by the Antifascistische Schutzwall, or anti-fascist bulwark barrier. Remember, according to the Soviet Union and East German agitprop, they're the good guys. They're the GDR, the German Democratic Republic. Those are the good people. Us over here in the West, we're the fascists. West, West Germany, what we call democratic Germany or, or capitalist Germany, they were the fascists, right? So it's the Antifascistische Schutzwall, the, the anti-fascist barrier. Now, that barrier is, in fact, two walls, what we call the Berlin Wall. It's two walls. And in between them is a death strip in the middle where anyone trying to escape could be easily mowed down by machine guns, assuming that they didn't accidentally step on a landmine first. By the end of the Cold War, this is you know built up from the original barbed wire into walls and then successive walls. They keep adding it and really put a lot of effort into sprucing those uh, those walls up in terms of security. By the end of the Cold War, it's spanning 96 miles, 13 feet high, and studded with guard towers and lookout points. There's about 30,000 border guards in East Germany, and they're not there to keep people from coming in. They're there to keep people from coming out. Imagine you were an East German the day that wall first went up. One day, you wake up, talk to your neighbors, cross the street. They're part of the competing regime, but whatever. You compare notes on how your pensions work. Kind of interesting. Maybe you get coffee across town because your aunt used to live over there. They've got, they've got a good guy that does uh, you know, good, good latte. And uh, you save up some money, catch a show at the Western Cabaret. And then the following day, you wake up and you're marooned. You're isolated. Your neighborhood has been split in half. You can't walk over to your old pub or play checkers with your West German buddy in the park on the other side of town until today you had friends and cousins and acquaintances who lived on the other side, and now they are gone. You don't get to visit them. You don't get to leave. If Grandpa lives in West Berlin and you live in East Berlin, you're never seeing Grandpa again. Not in person, anyway. In the course of researching today's program, I looked through a number of old photos of German families and the Berlin Wall, and many of them are trying to connect in some way with people across the border. In one photo, you can see the back of a bride and groom, and they're in their wedding outfits, and they've climbed on top of ladders or apple boxes, and they're waving past barbed wire to their relatives on the other side who are waving back. 
I found this one picture of two elderly German women, and it was kind of poignant for me because they look remarkably similar to some of the older ladies of my family from when I was a kid. And these two women are leaning out a window, and one of them has her hands clasped, and she's trying not to cry. And the other lady has her arm around her. The caption reads, Wedding at Brunauerstrasse, the mother and aunt of the bride looking out of their window in East Berlin to the couple in West Berlin, September 1961. I've also uncovered a few stories of engaged couples who got split apart by the wall and were heartbroken. Fortunately, the Germans are an ingenuitive people and teenagers are a markedly horny people. So when you combine the two, you get a lot of very dedicated young German men escaping in homemade balloons and stuff to reunite with their sweethearts. So there were some nice stories in there as well. Actually, that goes for people across the age spectrum. In May of 1962, when the Berlin Wall isn't even a year old yet, 12 East German pensioners spent a little over two weeks digging their way to freedom. They wound up constructing this tunnel from East Berlin to West Berlin that's 104 feet long and six feet high, which seems odd if you think about it. You're risking your life the entire time you're digging this tunnel. Why would you make it six feet high? You could have finished a week faster if you made it four feet high and you could have just crawled through. And I loved their answer. My God, it's so human. When asked about the unusually tall escape tunnel, the escapee said something to the effect of, we wanted to walk comfortably with our wives into freedom. We did not want to stoop or bow. So this wall is a very real emotional wound, a psychic wound inflicted upon the people and families of Berlin with attendant geopolitical ripples. Less than a year after the wall goes up, the world nearly ended through an altercation at one of these grim checkpoints over opera. Up until now, American servicemen stationed in Berlin hadn't been subject to any movement restrictions. We're not German, so diplomats or officers might go out for a night of binge drinking or what have you in East Berlin. Having visited several formerly communist countries myself, I can tell you the American dollar has a lot of purchasing power in any economy that's been bottomed out by socialism. So if I wanted to go on a cheap piss-up back then, I'd have headed to East Berlin and bought a few barrels of Pilsner for everybody at discount rates. In August of 1961, America's senior diplomat in West Berlin, Edwin Allen Leitner, decides he's going to go watch an opera in East Berlin. But he gets stopped at Checkpoint Charlie, one of the three checkpoints in the wall at that time. And the Germans demand to see his passport. He says something to the effect of, Hey, fellas, I don't know if you remember this, but we beat you. In fact, we creamed you. Fair and square. And there's a peace treaty between you, me, and Uncle Joe saying American diplomats have freedom of movement to go from east to west Berlin as we so choose. So if you could kindly get out of my way, I don't want to be late to the opera. Or maybe he was polite about it. I don't know. I've not been able to find a transcript. In any event, the East Germans wouldn't let him through, so he turned back and he came back in. Which prompted our top military guy in Berlin, General Clay, to send over another American, this time with an armed escort of military jeeps, just to prove we could. And they go joyriding through East Berlin for a bit, make their point, come home. 
So the Soviets respond by sending over a fleet of tanks to check Point Charlie. General Clay sees their wager with an equal number of tanks, and they stayed there. Our M48 tanks and the Soviet slightly boxier, uglier tanks with bad gas mileage in a very deadly, tense standoff that could have well been the kickoff for World War III if anybody had so much as sneezed. They stand there, those tanks, for 16 consecutive hours because our guy couldn't get to the opera. Fortunately, during this time, President Kennedy opens a back channel with the Kremlin to see if, I don't know, we could work out some kind of deal, maybe get will call tickets to the next opera, avoid thermonuclear war. I, I don't know what they said. Washington and the Kremlin did manage to squeak out a solution because we're all standing here today, and they ended up slowly disengaging from this tank standoff in Berlin. One of us would pull back one tank, one tank would roll away backwards, and then the other guy's tank would roll away backwards. We did this one tank at a time until we got all of them back from the precipice of a shooting war. Again, over opera tickets. Thanks a lot, opera. The Berlin Wall becomes the epicenter and physical symbol of the Cold War. In 1963, President Kennedy gave a stirring anti-communist speech in West Berlin to an enthralled audience of 120,000 spectators, most of whom he probably had sex with. Freedom has many difficulties, and democracy is not perfect. But we have never had to put a wall up to keep our people in to prevent them from leaving us. Freedom is indivisible. And when one man is enslaved, all are not free. All, all free men, wherever they may live, are citizens of Berlin. And therefore, as a free man, I take pride in the words, Ich bin ein Berliner. Incidentally, that last line, which is the most famous part of that speech, does not mean, I am a jelly donut. You might have heard before that uh, he should have said, Ich bin ein Berliner, but instead he said, Ich bin ein Berliner, or something like that. Um, the transcript is correct. He has a Massachusetts accent. Everything I've read says that that's an urban legend, so he didn't say I'm a jelly donut. Berlin stays divided for decades. Over this time, at least 171 people die trying to escape and get around that wall. But far more people manage to escape. Between 1961, when the wall goes up, and 1989, when the wall goes down, more than 5,000 people, including, incidentally, 500 border guards tasked with stopping them, defect and make their way to West Berlin through tunnels and sewers and even some zip lines and tightrope walkers in there. One guy identified an unfortified part of the wall and he crashed his car into it and ran through. I don't know how you could summon enough horsepower from a communist automobile to knock a hole in a wall. Presumably he drove it downhill to pick up steam. Either way, admire the chutzpah, glad he got to the other side. That wall's up for 20 plus years. We're now into the late 1980s. It's been there a while. And the Soviet Union is in a bad spot. It is sclerotic. We talk a lot, or at least we used to talk a lot, about the evils of communism, which is great, good topic. But 
we shouldn't forget the fact that outside of the dictatorships and wanton human rights abuses, it just doesn't work. It's not, aside from the morality, it's just not a good system. It's not a productive system. East and West Germany are great examples of this because they share the same culture and education levels. They'd both been bombed to smithereens during World War II. West Berlin, by now, is prosperous, well-fed, chic. They have their own German Elvis equivalent. His name is Peter Krauss. That's him singing. Whereas East Berlin is run down. Even into the 1980s, East Berlin still had bomb craters and rubble from World War II. You could walk around and see bullet holes from the war that hadn't been repaired yet. In 1989, East Germany had 40% lower productivity than West Germany. It's about half as productive as West Germany. And it's on the brink of bankruptcy to the point that the communists have to ask West Germany for a loan. That stark contrast between wealth and rubble is emblematic of the entire Soviet experiment. The West generated prosperity through markets, freedom, self-interest, and government investments in education and infrastructure. But we didn't so much create prosperity or design prosperity as we unleashed it by letting markets do their thing. The Soviet Union tried to generate prosperity through central planning. Give smart people enough power, and they can design and dictate an ideal economy from the top down. Surely, a command economy organized by experts can outpace an economy with no planning at all, just a bunch of grocers and steel tycoons setting their own prices. And the Soviet Union failed rather spectacularly. In 1990, the per capita income of the United States was a little over $23,000. The per capita income of the Soviet Union, just under $7,000. So three times a third of what we're making over here. And Soviet Premier Mikhail Gorbachev isn't an idiot. He knows the numbers aren't adding up. And he knows the Soviet Union couldn't indefinitely rely on size and bulk to compensate for a fundamentally flawed system. Their whole economy, much like today, was kept afloat by oil and gas. So when the oil market bottomed out in 1986, that spelled fiscal doom for the USSR. They were running out of money, and at the same time, they were running out of goodwill from oppressed people who increasingly wanted national autonomy and or individual rights. So Gorbachev introduces major reforms, glasnost, which means openness, and perestroika, which means restructuring. The Soviet Union, under his watch, would relax censorship at the press, give its satellite states greater autonomy, allow for some limited democratic elections, and ease back on the otherwise unyielding centralized control of the economy. He intended to borrow a handful of liberalism from the West and patch it into the existing rusty communist framework to create a hybrid structure. And he hoped that by doing so, he could shore up communism's health problems with a selective transfusion of freedom. Slop a little bit of market economy on top of that underlying state control. Maybe it'll generate enough wealth to keep the communism going. In 1987, President Reagan visits the Berlin Wall and calls out Gorbachev for only wanting to facilitate cosmetic change rather than real institutional fundamental shifts towards freedom within the Soviet Union. We hear much from Moscow about a new policy of reform and openness. Some political prisoners have been released. Certain foreign news broadcasts are no longer being jammed. 
Some economic enterprises have been permitted to operate with greater freedom from state control. Are these the beginnings of profound changes in the Soviet state, or are they token gestures intended to raise false hopes in the West or to strengthen the Soviet system without changing it? We welcome change and openness, for we believe that freedom and security go together, that the advance of human liberty the advance of human liberty can only strengthen the cause of world peace. There is one sign the Soviets can make that would be unmistakable, that would advance dramatically the cause of freedom and peace. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, Come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. <laughs> Mr. Gorbachev, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I love that speech. It's one of Reagan's finer moments. Although I, I am going to go ahead and offend some people who worship at the altar of St. Reagan. Reagan didn't win the Cold War. The Soviets lost the Cold War. Anyone who thinks the Soviet Union imploded because America beat it has a lot more faith in communism than I do. The Soviet Union imploded because communism is stupid and doesn't work. Six to eight million people starved to death under the Soviet Union. Now, to be fair, five million of those people were Ukrainians the Soviets intentionally decided to starve for political reasons. But that still leaves a solid one to three million people who accidentally starved due to febrile economic planning. Here's a good example of this. When agricultural output dropped, the Soviet Union could have gone one of two ways. It could have said, all right, from now on, farmers plant whatever they want, and if they turn a profit, they keep it. Grow more plants, get more money. Hopefully by harnessing the self-interest of farmers, they'll produce more food and we'll all get more potato vodka. Instead, what the Kremlin said was, the problem here is farmers aren't tilling enough soil. So we're ordering farmers to increase their daily tillage quota. We're ordering you by law to be more productive. And farmers responded by raising the blades on their tractors so that they could drive faster and lightly rake the topsoil so they could get that tillage in in a faster period of time, making a bad situation even worse. Think about that kind of phenomenon only applied across an entire economy. One factory makes exclusively left shoes and another factory makes exclusively right shoes and they can never get the numbers to match. Just that up and down the chain. And while I'm very glad he did it, Gorbachev got his democratic gambit exactly backwards. He thought if he dribbled a layer of democratic icing on top of a spongy communist bunt cake, citizens would be so grateful to his regime for their new freedoms that they would become more loyal to it and quit agitating. The regime would ease up on individual freedoms. They would love the regime for it. 
Whereas what actually happened was the Soviets got a taste of liberty and got thirsty for it. And when Gorbachev started giving them more freedom, they thought, oh, okay, we can push this guy. Furthermore, Gorbachev had more or less assumed that if he gave some local control and democratic elections to Soviet satellite states, they would in turn elect their own local communist ideologues who would naturally act in concert with Moscow, and the democratic action which facilitated this devolved power would breed goodwill all around. Instead, what happened was, these satellite states went, oh, wait, we don't have to rally around communism anymore? Okay, uh, let's rally around nationalism, our nationalism. We would like to be independent. When these Soviet satellite states start to break away, Gorbachev adopts a non-interventionist position. When Hungary decides to embrace democracy and markets, he's not going to go in there and reverse it with tanks and bureaucrats. And dissidents interpret this as calling the Soviet Union's bluff. They can poke the Soviet bear, and it's going to keep backing up. By 1989, the Soviet empire is dissolving. Poland was permitted partially free elections and proceeded to vote for anyone who wasn't a communist. The previously banned Solidarity Train Union came back and swept parliament. Communists clung on only because they'd allotted themselves a seat quota in this new system. And they had to enter a power-sharing agreement which signaled the demise of that communist regime. Today, Poland is a market economy and a member of the European Union. It's part of NATO. Czechoslovakia started protesting the communist regime. They did it in a brilliant way, I think. The only demands that they made were that their communist government abide by the constitution of the communist government. Communist regimes tend to have very robust, uh, complex, forward-thinking constitutions, which promise individual rights and freedom of assembly and freedom of speech and uh, additional rights we don't have here in America, and then they blatantly disregard those rights and murder dissidents who pointed out. Czechoslovakian dissidents just started saying over and over again, look, we, we don't even want to overturn you, we just want you to obey the law you yourselves wrote. And by doing so, they undermined the moral authority of that government and ushered in the Velvet Revolution, which would topple that government within the year. That music you're hearing right now, that's from the Singing Revolution. Two million people across Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania held hands in a human chain stretching 370 miles across three Baltic republics, all calling for, singing for, independence. In late October, the Hungarian government agreed to hold direct presidential elections and to allow for multiple parties to run for seats in parliament. Previously, they had elections for parliament, but only for members of the Communist Party. Those were the only, only communists were allowed to run for parliament. No other parties were allowed to run for parliament. By 1989, Hungary is still nominally communist, but the writing is on the wall. Everybody knows where it's headed, including the communists running it. And West Germany further catalyzes that. The West German government organizes an event called Pan-Europe Picnic, which encourages East Germans to vacation in their communist neighbor Hungary, which they're allowed to do. And while there, some of us West Germans are going to come over. We're going to have an international picnic. Come join us. When the East Germans arrive to the picnic, they're given gifts, food, wine, handfuls of Deutschmarks. They're told, you should come over to West Germany. If you come over here, we'll give you automatic citizenship. We'll find you a job, get you an apartment. I don't know if you know Hans. Hans' sister is single and she cooks. And the West German government 
quietly floats Hungary alone in exchange for disassembling its border with Austria. Austria is capitalist, but it's neutral, which means that if you're in East Germany, you can go on holiday to neighboring communist Hungary, as per normal, that's been going on for a while. It's all part of the Warsaw Pact, part of the Eastern Bloc. But then when you get there, because that Austrian border is no longer closed, you can just keep driving. Drive right into neutral Austria, and from there pop out into West Germany. There was a leak in the Iron Curtain, and East Germans start gushing out. So the Warsaw Pact is falling apart, and its member states, including the Soviet Union, are either capitulating to democratic forces or frantically reforming themselves to try and delay that from happening. And East Germany, communist Germany, is having none of this. Their leader, Eric Honecker, is a communist hardliner. If anything, he thinks Gorbachev is weak and naive. Gorbachev keeps calling him and saying, Eastern Bloc leaders need to implement perestroika. And Honecker tells him, we've already reformed everything that needed to be reformed. Honecker feels so let down, so angry at Gorbachev for backing away from hardline communism, Honecker refuses to let official texts about perestroika be published or sold in East Germany. In other words, the Soviet Union is at this point insufficiently communist to qualify to have its ideas distributed in East Germany. Honecker doesn't want to save communism by giving it a democratic kidney transplant, not from some gangrenous, decadent capitalist body anyway. He believes in socialism. He believes in communism. Now is the time to double down on it. Now is the time to punish dissent. Don't coddle it, punish it. These other limp-wristed, opportunist, fake communist leaders, let them buckle and give in to the demands of traitors, but not East Germany, no sir, not Erich Honecker. He goes the other route. If Hungary is going to start letting East Germans escape through Austria to the West, well, guess what? We'll shut our border down with our sister socialist state. Serves them right. East Germans are traveling to Czechoslovakia so they can slink into the West German embassy like a bunch of cowards and get refugee status? Fine. We'll shut down the border with communist Czechoslovakia as well. We don't need them. Everyone else is opening up, and East Germany is clamping down. There were massive demonstrations in Berlin, Leipzig, and Dresden. On October 9th, 1989, within days of East Germany celebrating its stodgy, pudgy 40th anniversary party, 70,000 protesters take to the streets. And this is a big deal within an oppressive communist regime. Protests are to France as baseball is to Kansas. French people protest every other day. I imagine French doctors prescribed increased riots to fat people in their country. They love protesting. There's nothing dangerous about protesting in France. It's, it's, it's anywhere from valid to hobby-level enthusiasm. People just turn up because they heard there was a protest, right? Not the case in East Germany. Not the case in communist Germany. 70,000 people turning up to protest the communist regime means that 70,000 people were so mad they were willing to risk getting arrested or shot for real and turned up anyway. In the 50s and the 60s, the Soviet Union had not played nice when people did that. Hungary had tried something brutally suppressed. Czechoslovakia tried something brutally suppressed. This same year, China had just 
put down dissonance in Tiananmen Square. And initially, that's what Eric Honecker wants to do. A few people get shot. A lot of people get beaten up. Probably everybody involved gets a file with the state secret police, the Stasi. But it doesn't matter. If thousands of people are taking to the streets in protest, it means the state has lost control. It means that anger is outpacing fear. Within days, the East German Politburo ousts Honecker. He retires for health reasons. And a few days later, the East German prime minister resigns along with two-thirds of the Politburo. Egon Krenz becomes the new party chairman and leader of East Germany, all while the number of protesters on the streets is swelling now to half a million people. Half a million people. Germany is a pressure cooker. Hundreds of thousands of people are demanding more democracy, more rights, the ability to travel. Hopefully you guys are enjoying our presentation of Andrew Heaton's political orphanage and specifically his episode on the Berlin Wall. If you are enjoying it as much as I enjoyed it the first time that I listened to it and you happen to be in the Nashville area, then you owe it to yourself to get out of your house on August 5th at 5 p.m. at Scoreboard. It is in the Grand Ole Opry area of Nashville uh, come say hi to me come say hi to Andrew Heaton come say hi to Jen Briney of the political dish or sorry the congressional dish it's me and the boys have politics in the name she uh, has congress in her name that's it all right Jen Briney congressional dish Uh, Andrew Heaton the political orphanage and Justin Robert Young myself on the politics 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 podcast Uh, uh, and uh, just chop it up with us have a good time uh i'm so looking forward to seeing everybody uh i i know that um you know this is uh this is a weird time we're we're seeing a rise in 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 cases so everything's going to be outdoors uh please wear a mask if it makes you feel more comfortable uh but uh i do so miss being in a situation where i can and run into and, and have a, an actual conversation with some of the folks who enjoy these shows and I, I really hope that folks are digging this episode in the way that I uh, really 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 love it so uh, I'll get out of the way here but a reminder one more time our big political triad meetup and and by the way this is in you know a uh, uh, parallel with the podcast movement convention so if you're going to be at podcast movement we're going to be right next to you it is August 5th, 5 p.m. at Scoreboard in the Grand Ole Opry area of Nashville, Tennessee. For the last three decades, East Germans were legally permitted to visit West Germany as tourists. You're welcome to, please. Of course, go visit West Germany. If you had a passport which most East Germans could not obtain legal permission for from the government. If they tried to do it, they would have to supply reasons that they wanted to go visit West Germany. And why would you try doing that? Because asking for a passport would only raise suspicions with the Stasi about what you were up to. Better to keep your head down. If you did get a passport, they'd only give you a visa to leave East Germany if you were too old to be economically productive, if you defected, or if you left your children there to ensure good behavior while you were on holiday. So... Egon Krenz and the East German government, they decide, we're going to loosen 
these travel restrictions. We're going we're gonna to liberalize travel. We're going to give some of these democratic rights that everybody's clamoring for. Nothing crazy. We're not going to open up the border. There's not going to be freedom of movement. But we'll start letting people apply. Everybody can apply for passports and for tourist visas. Everybody can do that. And when you fill out the paperwork, the regime will permit citizens to visit the West and, yes, even migrate. We'll even allow that. We're not going to get into the details or the restrictions right now. But when we relay this to the public, let's make it sound like a very big, massive change in policy. Very perestroika, very liberal, very forward-thinking government. No doubt citizens will hear this good news that the cuddly East German regime is letting them travel and hail us as heroes. Then quietly go back home. Quinz is on board with perestroika. He's, he's a fan of Gorbachev. He's more on that side of the thing than, than Erich Honecker is. So this is not all PR spin job. They will indeed be loosening travel restrictions. But again, they're loosening those restrictions. They're not opening the, the ports of entry. They want to widen the spigot enough to keep the dam from rupturing. Issue more passports and travel visas in an orderly, manageable system, subject to some restrictions and delays, starting tomorrow, starting on November 10th. That's the plan. Here's the problem. What with all of the resignations and government turnover, the East German regime is, to put it mildly, in a state of flux. There's a lot of miscommunication going on. And this day, November 9th, 1989, the government spokesman who's supposed to deliver this big press announcement about liberalizing travel restrictions, Gunter Schabowski, isn't actually in the planning meeting where they discuss the scope or time frame for lifting said travel restrictions. He's not told about the actual minor changes they're making or how they basically want him to sound as if they're making massive radical changes, which are actually less radical when you look at the fine print. He's not told anything. On his way out the door to an unrelated press conference, party chairman Egon Krentz literally hands him a note and says, here you go, tell the journalists about this. It's going to make us look great. Just kind of a, a, a vague statement of, here's a piece of paper, good luck. Shabowski barely even skims it on the limo ride over to the press conference. He knows it's got something to do with passports, but that's not what he's talking about at the press conference, so he doesn't really worry about it. Incidentally, Gunter Shabowski, who is in our story today, probably probably the most responsible for the fall of the Berlin Wall, or, or at least he's the guy that, that pulled the trigger on everything that ensued. He is singularly ill-equipped to lead a press junket. As part of all the newfangled perestroika crap the government is giving into, the East German regime has decided to allow Western-style press conferences where journalists ask questions and government officials answer them. Schabowski's career has been entirely within a scripted, tightly controlled communist regime. For example, he's a newspaper editor at one point when he doesn't actually control how many pictures of the party chairman needs to be put in the newspaper. They tell him, sometimes upwards of 40. He comes to power when press conferences consisted of the party spokesman telling journalists what the news is and the journalists intently writing down their instructions. He's not used to having to think on his feet, and he doesn't see a need to. He's just making an announcement, and you all write it down and then put it in your papers. That's all. That's what a press conference is, right? So he launches into this very boring, very communist press meeting about what the party will do if they decide to have a conference, and it goes on for a very boring hour. 
until Schabowski opens up for questions. A journalist asks him about proposed travel restrictions, and Schabowski remembers that his boss gave him a note about that. So he pulls it out of his pocket, and he starts reading verbatim. Um, yes, uh, private travel outside the country can now be applied for without prerequisites. Up until then, the journalists had been kind of poking each other to keep from dozing off. Now they're all very alert, because it sure sounds like the party spokesman for East Germany just mentioned kind of offhand, yeah, everybody has freedom of movement now. So they start peppering him with questions. At this point, Schabowski's getting slightly alarmed. He assumed that Kurtz had handed him a press release, which had already been distributed, and which the journalists had read. He doesn't realize that he's breaking the news to them right there at this moment, without knowing the context or restrictions or timeline or intent. He starts nervously plowing through his notes, hoping that by reading it, it's somehow going to save the situation. We have decided today er, to implement uh, regulations that allow every citizen of the GDR to uh, leave the GDR through any of the border crossings. Wait, what? We're allowed to emigrate now? Now journalists are flipping out. Do, do we even need passports to do this? Can we just walk out? When, when do these changes take effect? Shooting from the hip, Shabowski says, uh, so far as I know, effective immediately. Now everybody's flipping out. This boring old socialist gas bag has just told the press junket that East Germany is letting citizens freely travel to West Germany. Somebody asks, what happens to the Berlin Wall? Are citizens free to travel to West Berlin? Uh, um, let me check my notes here. Okay, uh, permanent exit can take place via all border crossings from the GDR to the FRG and West Berlin. And about this time, he realizes he's really stepped in it. So he says, comrades, it's come to my attention that at 7 o'clock, which of course means the scheduled press conference is promptly over on time. So Shabowski wraps up with a rambling diatribe about nothing, just mumbling politician sentence fragments, blurbs about disarmament, kind of verbally treading water, then he gets the hell out of there. It's not a well-executed press conference. One of his superiors will later describe it, and I quote, as a cock-up. What Gunther Schabowski should have said is, as of tomorrow, East Germans will be at liberty to apply for passports and then later to apply for general tourist and immigration visas. So tomorrow, please proceed to your local precinct in an orderly manner to pick up your passport application. But instead what he does is only communicate that whiz-bang, oh my God, they're liberalizing travel restrictions part of this PR campaign, minus the very relevant qualifiers. West German television gloms onto this press conference and starts reporting that East Germany is lifting travel restrictions. By 8 p.m., based on inferences from that rather shaky press conference, West German broadcasters are now reporting that the East German government is opening the borders, they're uncorking the checkpoints, they're opening the Berlin Wall. East Germans are free to travel back and forth. East Germans can and do watch West German television. It's broadcasted over public airwaves. They've got those bunnier things, right? And in fact, they generally prefer West German TV because it's not obvious agitprop. The news is better. The broadcasters are blonder. So hundreds of East Germans 
And then thousands of East Germans start pooling around Checkpoint Charlie, Checkpoint Alpha, Checkpoint Bravo. And nobody knows what's going on. To put this in perspective for you, I spent about three hours just trying to figure out what the East German travel restrictions actually were, to what extent the Politburo wanted a PR campaign versus actual reform, and what capacity Schabowski bungled both, and what assumptions people on the street subsequently made. It took me a long time. It was very confusing. And that's going off of well-documented historical events that were settled 30 years ago. In that moment, November 9th, 1989, nobody knows what's up. Least of all the guards who are stationed at these checkpoints. The Politburo hasn't given them any orders. Politburo is still in a meeting that started that afternoon. They're busy behind closed doors talking about setting chocolate prices or adding another zero to their worthless currency or some other dumbass communist thing. They don't even know about the press conference or to what extent these citizens are rapidly leaving their homes and coagulating around the border that they think is going to be open any minute. The guards are cagey. Despite no orders or warnings, all these citizens are shouting at them that the wall is supposed to be open and it was on the news and Comrade Schabowski said we could just walk through to West Berlin. That press conference ends just after 7 o'clock. Our man Schabowski, he's punctual. we got to give him that. By 7.15, there are already 80 people at Invalidenstrasse, Heinrich-Heinestrasse, and Bornholmerstrasse checkpoints asking to leave. That's 80 people in 15 minutes. 15 minutes, almost 100 people are already there prepped to go. The guards can't get anyone on the phone who will give them a straight answer because no one on the phone knows enough to give them one. Further... The Stasi leadership, the state police leadership, kind of wants the border guards to rough some people up, maybe open fire, you know. But no Stasi officer wants to put his name on the order that leads to lethal force or gets him in trouble. Everybody wants to pass the buck on. Meanwhile, it's just late enough in the evening that due to time zone differences, the punctilious East German government and Egon Kranz don't feel comfortable calling Mikhail Gorbachev at his home at such a late hour. They don't, mm, you know, we'll call the Kremlin. It's right on, it's right on the edge, isn't it? I mean, let's it, see, it's 9 o'clock here. It'll be 11 o'clock there. <sighs> we'll, we'll call him tomorrow. So the guards are on their own, and they're actively debating, do we let these thousands of East Germans march through without authorization and do the exact opposite of our job descriptions? Or do we gun them down? Meanwhile, the people of West Berlin are gearing up for a party. They have the same flawed information everybody else does. They're watching the same news. So they're assuming the gates are about to burst forth and a mighty swell of East Berliners are going to swing by to say hi. While the East German guards are trying to make heads or tails of the situation and the East Berliners are pooling up by the thousands around these checkpoints, West Berliners, capitalist, democratic West Berliners, are scrambling up the Brandenburg Gate to stand on a flat section of wall that doesn't have any barbed wire so they can get a good view. They're in their pajamas and their nightgowns, and they're waving to the crowds of East Berliners across the strip. Come over! Hey, hello! Come on, come over, come on, come! Guards at the Brandenburg Gate try to scatter these West Berliners by turning a fire hose on them, and I'm not making this up. It's a communist fire hose, which means it has lots of holes in it. So it's not very powerful. They can't knock anybody off the Brandenburg Gate. But it is irritating enough. It's wet enough that the crowd disperses. 
except for one very resolute German who brought an umbrella. About this time, a huge crowd is assembled at Bornholmerstrasse border crossing, which is the biggest checkpoint between East and West. At that critical juncture, there's a secret police officer in charge, one of the Stasi, named Harold Jaeger, and he is not having a good evening. He watched Gunter Schabowski botch that press conference, and when Comrade Moron said, so far as I know it's effective immediately, Jaeger shouted, bullshit, at the television screen. Because nobody in the Politburo had told him about this. No Stasi bigwigs had said, by the way, uh, we're going to open the gates tonight around 9 p.m., just so you know. That didn't happen. And now there are hundreds of West Berliners screaming, come over, come over, in their pajamas on that side of the wall. And there are thousands of screaming East Berliners demanding to be let out on our side. And there's just him and five dozen guards holding back hundreds, if not thousands of people. They have pistols and machine guns. But there's a serious chance this crowd, which is much larger, will overpower them and take those weapons, and that's not good. Or maybe one of his men will do something stupid, an open fire, spark a riot, prompt a massacre, get everybody in trouble. The stakes are high, and nobody knows the cards in their hand that they're playing. Jaeger gets his boss on the phone, who tells him, okay, listen, I'm going to patch you in to the conversation I'm having with my Stasi superiors. I want you to be quiet. Don't mention you're on the phone call. This is just so you know what's going on. He explains to them the situation, the trouble Jaeger is having, how he can't get people to go home. And the Stasi leadership asks, is this Jaeger capable of assessing the situation realistically, or is he simply a coward? Incidentally, Harold Jaeger is scheduled for a doctor's appointment the following morning because he probably has cancer. In fact, he might be dying of cancer, and this is my inference here, but based on the brain drain of doctors fleeing from East Berlin to West Berlin, I suspect there was a strong possibility that his appointment had entailed a significant wait time, and he was probably thinking about that, about the cancer and the wait time and his bosses who just called him a coward, and that for some reason, he's in charge of this massive cock-up, again, technical term, of people agitating to go into West Berlin. He tries to calm down the crowd goes back to the phone, calls the Stasi, and they tell him, okay, look, okay, shut up. Here's what we're going to do. Let the troublemakers go through. Let some of the people go, just find the most loud, obnoxious people, the people that are causing problems. We're going to let them out. And when you do it, void their passports because that is a one-way trip. Those are traitors. They are not welcome back in East Germany. The moment they leave, they are stripped of their citizenship and good riddance to them. About 9 o'clock, Jaeger starts letting the loud people through. But you can see the problem with his plan, right? Isn't this obvious? Once people realize what he's up to, they realize that if they're just louder, they get to go through, more people get louder. So more and more people start making noise. Pretty soon, Jaeger's just letting clumps of people through. He's not even bothering to stamp their passports. So far, the Stasi have only authorized a limited number of people to be released to placate the crowd. But there's a very big problem as a result of this. A lot of the people that have been let out, in fact, most of the people that have been let out to West Berlin, aren't defectors. They're just curious. These aren't freedom fighters or opposition leaders with cool t-shirt slogans. These aren't uh, the French resistance only in East Berlin. These are just people, folks. They weren't looking to permanently move to West Berlin. They just wanted to get ice cream, go window shopping. They've got milk in the fridge. They've got kids. 
They got to go home and pay the babysitter. When these people head back to the checkpoint at Bornholmerstrasse to return, they're turned away. I'm sorry, that was a one-way trip. Did you not hear us say that? Why did you think we were stamping special stamps on passport photos? We were avoiding those passports. You're not allowed to come back in. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I can do nothing. You're not an East German citizen anymore. You'll need to take it up with the West German consulate. Somebody shoves Harold Jaeger. Somebody shoves another guard. He looks at the thousands of people demanding to be let out, the apoplectic parents trying to get back in. That weird guy with an umbrella that won't get off the damn wall. And he says, screw it. Open the gates. Open the gates. There are, at this time, 12 checkpoints around the Berlin Wall. Bolhomerstrasse is the first to open up to the unrestricted travel. Meanwhile, the other 11 are simultaneously scrambling to figure out what's going on. At another checkpoint, a border guard's trying to disperse the crowd. All right, listen. Everybody listen up. There's been some kind of mistake here. You can't come through the wall. That order you heard only pertains to people who have the proper paperwork. So yes, it is effective immediately, as they said on the news, that is correct, but only for people who have the properly authorized travel visas to enter West Berlin. Okay? You can apply for passports in the morning. So everybody, please go home. And a little old lady, some grandmother, who'd weeks ago gone to the local bureaucrat to fill out the proper form and got it stamped and signed and mailed back with an official 30-day tourist visa, that little old lady raises her hand. Everybody told her on the walkover she didn't need to bring her passport, that Comrade Shabowski said that in the news report. You don't need a passport, but just to be safe. She brought her papers and her visa and her passport with her in her purse. And she holds up her hands and says, In Schuldergungsi, I have uh, the required paperwork. I have it right here. I have permission to enter West Berlin. May I go? <sighs> well, shit. All right, ma'am. You can proceed through the checkpoint. So the guards open the gate. And this little old lady walks across the length of the death strip with her passport and her visa alongside her 10,000 new best friends. Because when that gate opens, that's it. They're coming through. And as that first line of people stepped onto the death strip and walked between the guard towers and machine gun nests towards the west, they don't know if they're going to be allowed to walk all of the way or if they're going to be shot right there, gunned down by machine gun fire as a warning to all of the other protesters. They don't know. And I don't know that the guards knew what they were going to do. I suspect for everybody involved, that was a very tense, long stroll. You'd kind of need a drink after something like that. Fortunately, when they got to the other side, every single person in West Berlin was very happy to buy them a drink. Over at Checkpoint Charlie, one of these other places that people are coming out of the wall, a man bursts into Cafe Adler. It's right across from the checkpoint. And he shouts, I'm the first! I'm the first! And the restaurant bursts into applause. Cafes at this time use an ink stamp on bills to show that the bill has been paid. So he, he gets a beer and then he asks the waitress, would you please stamp my hand so I can show my friends back home that, that I've actually been here, that I have proof that I've been to the West? 
is this initial spurt of East Berliners wanders through the checkpoint into West Germany. West Berliners are popping champagne corks and cheering them. You can see footage from the first trickle of people coming through before the dam burst, and they are quietly ecstatic. They have this look on their face like uh, if you've ever walked through a familiar street and you're, it's, it's mundane, you don't even think about it, but suddenly it's blanketed with snow, and so what, what you take for granted now seems very alien and beautiful, and you're, you're kind of looking around for the first time. That's how these people look, and they're grinning. They're rolling down the windows of their boxy communist cars so that strangers can shake their hands, welcome them to West Berlin. West Berliners are passing out bouquets of flowers to give to their forbidden neighbors. Cafe employees are running outside with trays of free coffee and champagne. I found footage of this one guy coming through, and he's just some guy. Just some guy. He's not a hero. He's a mailman or the assistant manager at a grocery store. And he is baffled. He got up that morning and thought the biggest thing that was going to happen was... Maybe light rain. And here he is now. It's 1130 and he's strolling through a chink in the Iron Curtain into bizarro world Berlin that he's never been allowed in before. And this grown man with a job and a mustache and pants. He takes off his glasses and he starts crying. By 1215, all of the checkpoints are now fully open. It's no longer a trickle, it's a torrent. And thousands of people are pouring in. In East Berlin, there are Trabant and Wurtberg cars that have been left in the street with the engines running and the doors open from when their ecstatic drivers parked them and ran straight into West Berlin. Strangers are hugging each other in the street. I'm from East Berlin. Welcome back. Old people are crying and looking at how the neighborhood has changed in the 28 years since they were allowed to walk through it. West Berliners start driving into East Berlin in their cars just to pick up random folks on the street and drive them back to the party. Movie theaters reopen because East Berliners want to see Western films. They're showing Bailout, starring David Hasselhoff, in which a trio of hapless bounty hunters are recruited by a shady bail bondsman to try to keep a witness in drug trials alive to testify. One and a half stars on Rotten Tomatoes, I checked. That's going on loop! Theaters quit charging admission. Incidentally, uh, Germans love David Hasselhoff. He had, he had done a musical tour in uh, West Berlin, I think maybe East Berlin, earlier that year where he sang a song called Looking for Freedom. Later this year, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, he will literally sing Looking for Freedom suspended by a crane over the Berlin Wall and kind of become the Dolly Parton of Germany. Germans who can tear themselves away from theatrical genius and star of Knight Rider are climbing the Brandenburg Gate with pickaxes and chisels, and they're hammering away at that hateful barrier. East German guards are watching, you can see them, and they're, they, they're bewildered, they don't know. Their whole job was to stop this from happening, and they're just standing there now, they don't know what's going on. They hear pretty quickly. Friendly West Berliners come up and hand them a bottle of Merlot. Take a swig right out of the bottle. You know what? You keep that bottle. I'll get you another bottle. Welcome to West Berlin. Fireworks are spontaneously launching over the streets. Everybody's honking their horns like they've won the biggest football game in all of history. People are wheeling out kegs from beer houses. Keg after keg after keg. There's free beer everywhere. 
Strangers are embracing, soldiers are dancing, Umbrella Guy probably got laid. Everybody's so friggin' happy just to be together again. That's day 10,316 of the Berlin Wall. The last day it truly was a wall, November 9th, 1989. We're going to leave behind that undoubtedly kicking street party and jump to America in early 2020, just last year. I'm in California on the phone with my mom, who is relaying news to me from our home back in the neighborhood I grew up in where my parents still live in Oklahoma. That neighborhood's two streets, three cul-de-sacs, maybe 20 houses, I think. So with minimal effort, if you live there, you can pretty much know all of the neighbors by name. On the far side of the neighborhood, there's a younger family, a husband and a wife, little kids, and they moved into the addition sometime after I graduated college. I've met them on walks. They're nice, but I don't, I don't really know them. And they're relocating out of state due to work. This is what my mom is uh, telling me. Under normal circumstances, prior to the pandemic that's going on at this time, someone might have thrown a barbecue for that kind of occasion and, and had you know them and other neighbors over. Or maybe if that's too much to coordinate, maybe... Neighbors would just kind of swing by piecemeal to say goodbye, shake their hand, wish them luck, bring over cookies, maybe make some introductions for them to contacts in Texas. But it's lockdown. It's early lockdown. It's uh, still cold out, and nobody feels really comfortable throwing a party. So instead, the husband's work colleagues and some of our neighbors there in the neighborhood organize a cavalcade for them, a quiet but kindly parade of well-wishers who all drive in a line right past their house so the family can stand on the porch and wave goodbye to everyone. When I get off the phone, I start tearing up because I think what a wonderfully wholesome thing that is to want to mark the solemnity of that occasion to say, we know this isn't just a real estate transaction. This means something. You're leaving our community and we don't want you to slip out the back unnoticed. We want you to know that we're aware that you're leaving, we're aware of you. Good luck. Goodbye. One of my friends once told me that she thinks it's like somebody shook a Norman Rockwell painting too hard and I fell out, and I think there's some truth to that. So knowing that about my neighborhood and the regular people that live there and have barbecues and jobs and mustaches and pants... I want you to imagine that one day everybody there wakes up and there's a concrete fence with sharp, jagged barbed wire dividing the neighborhood in half. On one side are the Democrats, the never-Trumpers, some independents, a guy who claims to be Canadian when he travels. On the other side are the MAGA hats, the Trumpers, a lot of pickup trucks. If that happened, if some foreign power came in and split us apart, built a physical wall separating us. We wouldn't regard that with relief. We wouldn't say, good. Now I don't have to run into those knuckle-dragging Trumpists anymore on the other side of the neighborhood. Or, thanks for the free wall, suckers. Now I don't have to talk to those limp-wristed Northside cucks. No, we'd resent it. We'd resent it, and we would do everything in our power to undermine it. Dads would be digging tunnels with spoons at night. Moms would tether casserole dishes to balloons to float over the wall. 
kids learn Morse code so they could swap dirty jokes back and forth. And that's not just in my neighborhood. I think that that's everywhere. If you put a wall up in America, if you could somehow erect a physical barrier around blue cities and red counties, we would look at it with horror and disdain like a prison wall that had been thrust on us or a concrete blood clot. If that happened to us, don't you think eventually when we finally knocked that wall down, we'd see guys in cowboy hats and women in sheep persisted t-shirts hugging each other and crying, just excited to be together again? I do. I think that would happen. In Cold War Germany, a lot of people on the east side of the wall thought the West was literally fascist. Not figuratively fascist, literally fascist. The stepson regime of Adolf Hitler, perpetuated and bankrolled by evil foreign bankers. And the West saw in the East the brutal socialist footstool of the Soviet empire. Is the ideological gulf between people who voted for Trump and Biden more expansive or bitter than that of West and East Germany? Of capitalists, many of whom are reformed fascists, against communists? Could we, could we actually make the case that the gap between East and West Berlin was somehow smaller or of less consequence than the gap between our own Republicans and Democrats here today? I don't think so. And yet, without anybody conquering us, we've built our own wall. Tweet by tweet, snarky remark by snarky remark, mortared with contempt and bad faith. Probably over the last few years, you've lost some friendships, maybe some family members because of politics. I have. I work in political media, and I hate all of this. I hate this contempt and, and rancor and tribalism. I detest it. I do this for a living, which means that every week for the last four years, my dating prospects, career options, and social life are all affected by what people infer about my character based on the flavor of adverbs I use to express my opinion. Or even more fun, I'm judged because I don't hate the right people or I don't hate them loudly enough or often enough. It's a new year. It's a new president. We have an opportunity to reframe how we've been approaching politics as a nation. We've been operating as if people with contrary political opinions are cult members of an enemy faith, posing an existential threat. If you disagree with me, it must be because of your hatred for America and excess soy. If you disagree with me, it must be because you're a secret, willful bigot. Even if you don't think so, my political orientation gives me the magical telepathic abilities to peer through your fast food engorged little heart and spot the hillbilly darkness you are too privileged and uneducated to notice. I'll admit I've got little dark spots in my heart, but I'm actively trying not to fan them. Here's what I'm doing on my end. I try to avoid contempt like the plague. We can be angry, passionate, scrutinous, skeptical. When lives and livelihoods are on the line, and that's true with governance, passion and skepticism are good. But that energy ought to rightly be directed at policies, not character attacks of people in an enemy clan. I would love it if, as a country, we started judging policies based on their outcome and judged people based on their intentions. So, congratulations to President Joe Biden. I wish him great success. I listened to his speech today, and I very much enjoyed it, and 
rhetorically and emotionally agree with the sentiments therein. I hope that this will be a positive force in America and that we will, in fact, have the capacity to turn over a new leaf and approach things together. And if President Biden is anything like Senator Biden was, I suspect he'll have several dumpsters full of bad ideas that I will be nitpicking and firing jokes at over the next four years. But you know what? Despite the numerous policy missteps he's made and is poised to make, I rather like him as a person. He seems like a nice guy. I'm skeptical of a lot of his agenda, a lot of his appointments, but I'm on page with him about coming together as a people and generally praising America as a force for good, as opposed to an evil, darkened realm we should be ashamed of, where two sides in a nascent internal Cold War. Fortunately, you and I, we're all at liberty to like and befriend people that we disagree with. In fact, we can argue with them and oppose them most vociferously, but we can do that by opposing their policies, their ideas, not the person themselves. And we can even be friends with people who voted the wrong way for a clearly horrible candidate. Because like it or not, we're still neighbors. So we might as well learn to get along. And maybe someday, if fortune smiles on our great land, we'll put those differences behind us and watch the brilliance of David Hasselhoff films together. Okay, that's the show. Thank you for listening. I really enjoyed making that episode. I put a lot of work into it. That was a lot of, a lot of time and research and production, but I enjoyed it, and I hope you got something out of it. If you did, and you're glad I'm doing what I'm doing, I'd sure appreciate your support, which you can give by going to patreon.com slash Heaton. Support starts at $3 a week, which is basically a cup of coffee. So ask yourself, is the episode I just heard worth more or less than a venti cappuccino from Starbucks? If it's worth more than a venti cappuccino, please consider supporting the program. And if it's worth more and you don't, I want you to feel guilty next time you go to Starbucks. Patrons get bonus content additionally. If you enjoyed today's episode, I did a full bonus episode very similar in timbre to this one a few months ago about Winston Churchill and the opposite of Winston Churchill, who actually endorsed for our time, replete with history and music and hot takes on pluralism, all of which you would probably enjoy. In this week's bonus episode, Brian Brushwood and I retreat into my scamp to field questions from fellow listeners about awkward political conversations they've had, fights they've been in, times they didn't want to fight but they got dragged into one, in hopes that Brian and I can give our perspective and and maybe avoid some of these unpleasant conversations in the future. And as a special thank you to patrons of the show, I will post the photos I referenced throughout today's episode as well as the show notes so you can see them and also have those hyperlinks if you'd like to do your own research. And if you would rather just leave me a tip, I will gratefully accept it, for I am not a communist. My PayPal address is andrew at mightyheaton.com, and my Venmo handle is andrew-heaton-1. So there are multiple methods by which you can give me money, and I will post all of them in the episode description. Until next time, I've been Andrew Heaton, and so have you.
This has been a special politics, politics, politics presentation of the political orphanage uh, written and performed by Andrew Heaton. Uh, If you would like to just uh, uh, go to at Mighty Heaton on Twitter and and say uh, that was the best episode of podcasting ever made because I really love it and hopefully you guys love it as well. A reminder that uh, this show is listener supported at the $3 level. You get two bonus episodes, including the one that we just did all about the infrastructure deal because that happened uh, in the window for the late edition. And uh, at the $10 level, you get your name read at the end of the show, including Headphones Neil, Dr. G, The Other Half of Whiskey, Wednesday, Idris, The Government Unfiltered Podcast, 100 Mile Runner, Berkeley, Stephen, Kathy, Max, Zombie, Doc, D, Really? Methuselah, Honeythuckle, The Jed, Middle-Aged Mike, Dotcom Junkie, Calamity Zap, D-Laser, Lord Scale, De Quince, Anile the Third, and Gloria Young for King of the New World Order, Utah, Jimmy, Montana, Chad, David Snuffies of Route 44, who I'm guessing had already heard that episode. Charles, Olin and Angela, DL, uh, Miranda Janelle, persons familiar with the matter. Robert, Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners. Brad, just another pilot, Frozen Summers, Jay Pink, and Andrew. If you would like your name read alongside of them, head on over to takepoliticsseriously.com. Uh, I appreciate you guys giving me the Friday off. It has been uh, helpful. I will see you all uh, for the uh, Sunday, Sunday, Sunday edition. If you are on the Patreon and uh, elsewise on Wednesday's episode, Friday will be a political triad episode with me, Briny and Heaton. Till then is your old pal, Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics others talk about politics and still more discuss politics but this this is the only show that dares discuss all three Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs) Dog and Pony Show Audio.